0: So one time I came and the grandparent was there. And the grandparent said, sure, come on in. So I went in. And this little girl had the greatest laugh. And she was always on her tippy toes. She she was so excited. She was always running around the room on her tippy toes. And again, this is a girl that I worked with. She was probably about three or four at the time. And then I worked with her over several years. I um, was doing the Rose Festival as a clown and I this woman came up and said, Would you mind having this little girl take a picture of you as a clown? And I looked and I thought, Oh my God, it's, it's, it's the girl.
1: This is Living as You. Here's your host, P.Q. This week on Living As You, we sit down with none other than Albert Balter, an actor, fire eater, professional fool, and most famously, a clown. On a mission to share laughter and joy with every person he meets, Albert has been a part of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus and continues to share his gift as a clown with hospitalized children, as he's been doing for decades. Get ready for times at the circus, peacock feathers, inspirational buttons, and above all, some fantastic moments of grace. Albert, how are you?
0: I'm fine.
1: You look great.
0: Well, I didn't wear my uh, tank top and bow tie because I thought, okay, I don't have to worry about that now.
1: I, I was waiting. Got to bring out that the, the, the tank top, maybe some peacock feathers, a couple buttons. I I can ha- I have all that, you know. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. It was an incredible gift getting to read up on you. I was able to find some amazing, amazing articles. And I'm just, I'm just so excited to ask you some questions today. So, Albert Fool, I want to begin today by diving into your time with the Ringling Brothers in Barnum and Bailey Circus. How on earth did you get involved with the circus?
0: Well, I auditioned four times or more for the uh... Well, I didn't audition, but I applied four times over the course of several years to get in. Brinkley Brothers, Barnaberry Clown College. And uh, when I finally got in, I was talking to one of the guys who had rejected me. And uh, I said, well, why did I get rejected? And he says, well, I don't remember specifically, but we were getting like 6,000 applications a year. Uh, and we we're taking 60 out of that. So it was hard to get into than, say, University of Notre Dame or something. He said you probably were making too much money because he was they were looking for people who would come, take the training, and then go to work with Ringling. As a matter of fact, over the years, they had added uh, the application actually had a final signature space that said, if you complete clown college, you will and we you're offered a job, you will accept it for a year. Because so many people were coming down, doing the training and then just go off. And and training was free. You had to pay room and board and costumes and stuff like that. But the training, which was top notch training for two and a half months by some really good instructors was free. So I I think I applied more times uh, than anybody else actually got in. There was a guy in San Francisco who had Friday's brains on drugs earlier. And he always come to the audition, but never seemed to pass. And on my last time, I thought I would go to actually do an audition. So I did fly down to San Francisco and do the audition. And that's what made it work for me.
1: Take me into the steps of how you go from being a college student, obviously, you're a graduate of Notre Dame, go Irish, to being in Tokyo, Japan, helping lead Barnum and Bailey's circus for the first time ever.
0: How did I get there? Red Skelton, you said one of the most noblest professions is being a clown. And I thought, how great. And I came back from uh, working with Catholic Leaf Services in Vietnam and Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey had just taken, uh, had just been bought by the Felds. And the Felds said that they have these clowns who could fall down, but they weren't sure they could get back up because they were kind of old. So they established a clown college and they also split the circus into two units, red and the blue, because they were really trying to, you know, obviously make money and cover the country. And if you only had one circus, you could only cover one part of the United States per year. But by having two, you got to cover the country more. And then it's the same thing. One unit would come through Portland one year, and then the next unit would come through Portland the following year. So you built a show and ran for two years. So it was basically a uh, economic decision.
1: Can you can you tell me a couple of stories? Maybe a particular moment or two from the circus that shaped how that shaped your journey and path to becoming a clown and serving others, particularly kids uh, in hospitals?
0: Well, actually when I was with Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, we went to the uh, Boston Hospital for children. That was my first experience being in a hospital as a clown. Before the show, they would bring kids down who perhaps were blind. And so they would do, let them have a tour and they would get the chance to feel your nose, to see what a clown nose felt like, to feel an elephant. And then there were times when there would be narrators from the local uh, AT&T volunteer operators, Pioneer Club, who would do narration of the circus so that people who were blind could enjoy the circus. The year I was there, we had two accidents uh, happen. And so there, there really is send in the clowns. That's, that's a tradition. And when I got there, I said, well, how do I know when that happens? So, well, they'll play the 12th Street Rag. And I said, well, I don't know what it sounds like. And one of the clowns says, you don't want to know what it sounds like. But when you, you'll know it when it happens. So we were sitting there in the alley. And sure enough, in Atlanta, matinee Saturday, they, 12th Street Rag right, changed. And they shouted, clowns, let's go. And so you always had some sort of costume on. You never were just sitting around in underwear or something like that. So we go in and you try to entertain the crowd to distract the crowd, while they are taking care of the injury. And the, this happened to be Marguerite Michelle who fell from her act was to hang by her hair from a r- ring and they would pull her up and down on a rope and she would juggle and do spins and stuff like this. And she had slipped out of the gimmick and had hit the ring curve. And so uh, we were there for a long time because the paramedics arrived, but two doctors arrived at the same time. And, and, in Atlanta or in Georgia, you have to follow the directions of the doctor. Or if a, if you're a paramedic and a doctor's there, you have to defer to them. One doctor said move her, the other doctor said don't move her. So they were there for we were there for a while and, and just trying the best you could. That night we had a, a clown who uh, always wrote poetry on Saturday night. And he, his final line would be, oh, it was good God Almighty, it's Saturday night," and it was one of the best poems about you know why we do this clowning. And again, the show does go on. So those are two two experiences. It's kind of extreme. And, and then the fun things, too, that you you go up in stands before, during coming, I'd always go up into the stands, and I might see somebody, it was the first time they'd been to the circus, and they could be 60 or 70 years old. And then you'd come down the next row, and you'd see this little kid who just probably had no idea what the circus was, but the mom and dad did. So it, it's, um, it's a really interesting, or was, of course, now it's closed, but.
1: And there are, other, fortunately, other circuses around. That's a tremendous gift. I don't know anyone who does not like the circus. That is that is for sure. So paint me a picture of what your day-to-day life would be like as a clown.
0: Normally, you would, you would only do, well, it depends. If you're doing one show a day, then you had the whole day off. I would always love to get off the train, and walk the city, see what's there. Some people would say, well, I was here two years ago, and I thought, a city can totally change in a year much less two years then sometimes you'd be doing what we call a six pack you do three shows on Saturday and three shows on Sunday so then you you basically get out of your makeup at midnight or, or 10 thirty or 11 you get back to the train you sleep and then you have to be back early in the morning and have to slap your makeup on for that 10 o'clock show and then you usually just stay in your makeup for the whole day because getting in and out of makeup just for that that would that was the long that was a Saturday. And then sometimes you do two shows on Friday. So you'd you'd show up around uh, noontime or something like that and get in makeup and costume and get out.
1: Got it. Got it. And so Albert, to me, you are whenever we've interacted, you are you laugh at life. That's a phrase I like to use better than anyone I know. And I've I've heard or read that must have started at an earlier age, can you take me through, I think there was a a great story, or great, I don't know for your mom, but when you almost burned down the house and when you went into practicing your abstract carving on the side of a piano, take me through some of those stories as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Yes, I had a, a brand new pocket knife when I was a little kid and we had an upright piano and so I just carved on one side of the piano. And so for the longest time in Greenville, Tennessee, there was a piano on this wall because you couldn't see the carving I had done on the other wall. And then I've, I've always loved fire. So I found some matches and blew the match out and tossed it in the trash can and left the room. And my father come, came through the room because he smelled smoke, I'm sure, and noticed that, uh, that it was on fire. So he got the fire extinguisher, put it out. And there's a desk that for the longest time was turned on another wall so that you couldn't see the burnt side of that of the desk. So, uh, yeah, I was, it was was interesting childhood <laughs> for my parents, I guess.
1: Where did that laughing at life, um, bringing joy, not taking things too seriously, where did that start or come from for
0: you? I just, have, for the long, long time, seen the power of laughter, and then for a while I did lectures for corporations about humor in the workplace, and because that's where we spend most of our time. Things happen, and then how do you respond to it? Some people thought when they broke up AT and uh, T, so that you could have MCI and all these other kind of things. Some people were totally terrified and thought this, and just were depressed. Other people thought, "Wow, this is a great opportunity." So it's how it's it's. How do you respond to what happens? You have one incident, you can respond to it and go into depression, or you can laugh at it and think. And so sometimes now when things happen, I'm often saying, this will be a very funny story in another day or two. And uh, you have people like Charlie Chaplin who say, comedy is tragedy seen in the distance. So you realize, yes, we're going to live through this divorce. We're going to live through this issue and how we respond. I knew a woman who was a very good clown, very funny, and was a school teacher. And unfortunately, she ended up getting cancer and she ended up dying. But she would, one, like the first time her doctor said, You have cancer, she said, Well, can I get a second opinion on that? And the whole time she dealt with her death through laughter. And the people around her were kind of going, Oh, well, at first they were kind of shocked and then they realized this is the way she dealt with what had been dealt to her. It's, it's inevitable. So why not enjoy and go out with their laughter?
1: What do you tell people to be able to laugh more at those situations that many times we find extremely upsetting?
0: Well, I think there was a, obviously 9-11 was a time when the comedian's weren't sure when they could start doing comedy again they they, they knew at some point we well, have to do it but when how long so that that was a situation where the whole nation was involved or the whole world there are things like that there are situations that you'll find that happen in your life and you'll think you know maybe you spilled a glass of milk when you were a kid and you got scolded for it because you were playing at the table as an adult you spill a glass of milk and you think hmm, gravity worked again yeah, just, it's just how you look at it. Laugh when you- can. I love that. Yeah. You can either laugh or cry. And I prefer to laugh. Yeah, that's just my philosophy. And it's interesting because you can cry and or you can laugh so hard you start to cry. And the tear composition of the tears when you are crying because you're really sad are different than the ones you are when you're happy.
1: I want to transition now into how you were able to take the role of being a clown in the circus to hospitals and transforming kids' lives who are going through just really, really hard circumstances. Can you take me through that journey of how you got into be- being a clown at the hospital, something you've done now for a very long time?
0: Yes. When I left the circus, I came back to Portland and I decided I was going to continue performing instead of doing chemical engineering. So I went into uh, performing and doing clown shows and teaching clowning and mime and circus skills uh, in schools and stuff like that. And the uh, National Health Organization, in, com- co- in combination with the Regional Arts and Culture Council here in Portland, did a hospital um, residency with artists at what that time it was called Legacy Emanuel. And so I heard about it and they had visual artists and poets and musicians and stuff like that. And I called up the one of the people I knew down there, and I said, but you don't have a clown. And this is just about the time Big Apple Care Unit was starting through the Big Apple Circus, and which is a Big Apple Care Unit was going into hospitals and putting people in. And I said, oh, yeah, you need to have a clown. So she said, well, send me uh, a tape <laughs> back then. So I sent her VHS, and uh, she said, okay, we'll try it. And then so then we, they had about 10 or 15 artists in this program for a year. and with that many people, you only got a chance to go maybe twice or three times a year or something like that. The first time I did a show that they videoed or showed it on closed circuit TV. And then the second couple of times I went or fourth or fifth, I just started going room to room and they would always have somebody with me to take me along. At the end of that time, they cut back the the, uh, number of artists to about six or seven. And fortunate; it was one of them who made the cut, I guess. And so I've been there ever since. And now, of course, they've got Randall Children's Hospital, which is on the facility of Legacy Manual. And so it's been 20, probably about 21 years been doing it. And it's, it's, as I, I personally think it's the best clowning I do. I get the most reward out of it. And I think it's the best for the one-on-one. Uh, it's, it's great to do a big show in a, in a theater, but at the same time, when you walk into that room, it's, showtime. And I'm not there to entertain. I'm there to build a rapport with that patient. And as one other clown once said, to get the energy in the room to shimmer, to change. That's what I'm going for. It's not that I have to make them laugh or anything. I'm just in there and seeing what I can do to distract them from what the situation is or make them feel better.
1: i into that a little bit more, the idea of that one-on-one interaction and how powerful that can be.
0: The main focus, of course, is the patient. But when I go into that room, if there's siblings or parents or anything, that's also part of, that's my audience. Let me just tell you what I do. I'll go into a kid's room and then I'll, I'll try to make rapport with them, You know, make a little joke or something and, and talk to them, find out some things. And then I'll do a magic trick maybe for them. If they're really young, I have one magic trick I do if they're teenagers and like I'm, not, I'm pretty sophisticated. Then I'll do a trick that will blow their minds away. And then, and then we go, I've got them booked. And then I may if they're older, I may show them a magic trick so that they have, and now we'll show them how it's done, like a card trick. So that when I leave, they have a deck of cards that they can keep practicing with. They can show other people that trick. I also give them peacock feathers to balance. And the only way you can balance a peacock feather is to look up. And as you move the feather, you have to look at the top of a different focus. It's interesting. Kindergarteners can do that. And so I would have worked up to where I will give them a, a paint stick. They bounce on a paint stick. And then I will give them a, uh, a friend of mine did some uh, coloring pages of my clown character. So I give them some coloring pages and the friends. And you can also balance the peacock feather on the edge of the coloring sheet. So then I, w- I go out. And what I've done, I've, I've given them an extraction. They thought that they could never, ever do that. And then they have that ability to do it. I've had situations where somebody would say, this is the first time she or he has smiled since we've been here. So it's it's very gratifying in that way. And, and the parents see that too. Oh, and I always give clown noses. And so I have two sizes of noses, a small and a little bit larger one, foam rubber. And I will say, this is the only time you can pick your nose in public. You want the little one or the big one? And then everyone gets their nose in the room. So I, when I leave, you have a room full of clowns. And if, if you get a parent who says, no, no, I, I really can't, then I say, give me your thumb. And I put the nose on their thumb.
1: That's so fun. It,
0: it is. It is. And sometimes I'm walking down the hallway, you can still hear the laughter you're going.
1: Yes. So. What's What's going through your head when you see that complete shift in emotion or joy that you're able to bring through goofy silly fun magic toys joy
0: I'm, I'm seeing the power of the clown somebody once wrote about the power of the clown and the holy spirit and so i uh, when i did publicity for a while i dropped the uh phrase holy spirit because i was just doing clowning i said never underestimate the power of the clown and the the clown is very, very powerful. Now there's something you know. You had a lot of people say, "Well, I'm terrified of clowns." And sometimes I'll get in the room and I'll say, "Well, it's up to you. Um, if you want me to come in, I can. If not, that's fine." And sometimes they'll let me come in, and I'll start working and playing, and they'll say, "Well, I'm not afraid of you." And I say, "Well, yes, you know, not all clowns are scary clowns. Very few are. We're really nice people."
1: Speaking of very nice people and and great people being clowns, please tell me if I'm wrong, but your wife is also a clown, correct?
0: That's correct. She uh, teaches singing, and I met her at a clown conference here in Portland. She was in charge of music, and I was just had to come back from Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey. And I was taking a class here on clowning, and this woman who ran it said, I think you need to be on part of this design team, and it was called organization it was called Clown Mimes Dance Puppetry Ministry Workshop, and it was to bring all these various art forms together to do ministry kind of work in churches, those kind of things. So I went to see what it was like. So I got, I was on the staff at one point, and so I was working with them, and I met this woman, who uh, Susan McBerry, who was in charge of singing and doing the music for the church service, which the clown service, which was going to be <laughs> on Sunday. And so she showed up at this meeting where it was pretty boring. It's a hot summer night. And she walks in, this big powerful energy source, and says, All I need to know is when, where, and how much music you want. And the energy level went from like twelve volts to two twenty. It was just phenomenal. So I said, Hmm, I have to get to know this woman. And so I did, and we hung out for the weekend while doing the conference. I moved slow, so it took about three years before I finally asked her to marry me so we got married she still of course teaches singing at some point we said it'd be fun to work together so we formed a group called the bozo arch duo and she sings art song and uh, we had a piano player michael barnes would be playing the piano and then they would need a page turner and i would come out of the audience and be the page turner from hell the fact that uh i would miss Turn the page. I turned two pages, three pages at a time. And so it was just like Victor Borga had said, we're not going to stop in the middle of a piece. We're going to finish the piece. And so it it was really lots of fun. One night the piano bench broke and Susan kept singing. And Michael was down on the floor with his hands above his head still playing on the keyboard. So I picked him up and had him sit on me. And then eventually we left. And Susan said, what happened? And we said, well, the piano bench broke. And people came back afterwards and said that was such a great bit. How do we do that? So we thought, well, this is life giving you an opportunity to use it. So then I worked for a couple of days on how to make a breakaway piano bench that we could break on cue, so that Michael would say now, and I'd break the piano bench leg, and we would take a spill. And uh, anyways, so we toured that show for a couple of years. It was fun.
1: Between the two of you, you both probably. Know how to bring so much joy and just so much laughter to so many people. Where does like, for example, peacock feathers? How did you end up finding, learning about the peacock feathers, and then figuring out that you could share that with kids in the hospital?
0: Well, I think I was at a clown conference and somebody was having to balancing a peacock feather as part of the performance. And so then I started looking at it and again found that it, it's very, very easy to do. The longer the object is, the easier it is to balance. So a pencil or a pen is very hard. peacock feathers very easy and also because it has air resistance. A feather as it floats through the air, the wind or the air keeps it from falling fast. So, so if you drop a feather and a pencil in air, the pencil will arrive on the ground first in a vacuum. Of course they both land at the same time because they both fall at the same time but one is more affected by the air resistance so i started doing the peacock feathers and it just uh it just worked they then have something they can do when i leave the room that gives them a distraction or gives them something they can do that to me then says okay i'm not just lying here in bed or i'm not watching the same old tv show i've watched But oh, maybe I'll try and do this. Or the nurse comes in, so the nurse can watch them balance the peacock feather.
1: Can you describe Albert a particular moment of interacting with a uh, a child who maybe initially was kind of resistant to all seeing a clown, or maybe was again struggling to the extent where they couldn't. uh, There was not a lot of laughter. But then after you came in, their entire demeanor, their entire day, week, month. Uh, was shifted in a, in a positive light.
0: Well, let me give you a couple of examples. There was one teenager who had cancer. And so you'd see these people, they go in for treatment, then they go home, and then they come back for their next treatment, and this kind of thing. She just fell in love with juggling, and then she wanted to learn magic. So I would always bring a new magic trick to show her. And I had this one called the Professor's Nightmare, which I would never show anyone because it's a very, very good trick. And a lot of magicians use it. So I thought, no, no, Well, one day she really kept bugging me. And I finally thought she's been in and out of the hospital so much that I will show her this trick. And one time I was there and the doctor shows up and she just and usually when that happens, I'll say, oh, you have a visitor. I'll be right. I'll be back because you never want to ask the doctor if if he or she wants me to stay or leave because then that makes them have to be the heavy to say, yes, I'd like for you to leave. So I always would exit. And sometimes the doctor would say, no, no, just stay here. I'm just going to do a quick checkup here or just talk to the parents. But this one little teenager just lit in the doctor. Get out of here. Get out of here. I'm, I'm, what's the on? Get out of here. Get out. And I, I just stepped back and just because I was not going to get in the middle of this. And so the doctor just turned and left. And so I saw him in the hall later and I said. Sorry about that. And she says, oh, no, it was far better that she saw you than me. I'll be back. And sometimes um, people die. And she died about a year later. There was another situation where this little girl, I'd go and, and she, was, she had a cancer. So she, her immune system was very uh, low. And her parents said, no, no, we don't want to visit from the clown." no, no, no. And I kept going back. And every time I'd go, I'd knock on the door and see if she wanted to visit her. And, uh, usually the parents would say no. So one time I came and the grandparent was there and the grandparent said, sure, come on in. So I went in, I did my routine. And this little girl was, had the greatest laugh and she was always on her tippy toes. She, that's, she was so excited. She was always running around the room on her tippy toes. So every time I'd come back after that, whether the parent or the grandparents were there, they'd say, sure, come on in. And again, this is a girl that I worked with. She was probably about three or four at the time, and then I worked with her over several years. I um, was doing the Rose Festival as a clown, and I, this woman came up and said, would you mind having this little girl take a picture with you as a clown? And I looked and I thought, oh my God, it's, it's, it's the girl. And she didn't even know that the person taking the picture didn't know my relationship with her and, and the girl, I don't think we put the two and two together because I was downtown in Portland and all that. And then uh, over the years I've seen her in the emergency room because something will happen. And so those are the kind of things, you know, that I, I have rapport with some of the kids I see over and over because they do make cycle back through emergency room or whatever. Other families will say, You'd never have seen all my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Usually that's in the emergency room. Sometimes they'll they'll say, say, well, you saw my kid when he was five. And they'll pull out their phone and they'll show me the picture of the kid who was five. And you've got this big boozoo, big boy uh, football player over here. And you're going, yeah, okay. So it's very, very gratifying. I love it.
1: Albert, when I think, when I hear those stories, the word grace comes to mind. And I know that's something that you've probably thought a lot about too in the past, these moments of grace. Can you talk about that and how that ties into your experience and your interactions with these children?
0: well that's there was another clown who often referred to them at those moments when you go into a room and and something magical happens, he'd say that was the moment of grace. Uh, he was a retired Presbyterian minister, and actually he became a clown on hospital because. He had a heart attack and my wife, Susan said, you need to go visit him in the hospital. It's a clown. And I said, do oh, I know. So I finally said, sure. So I dressed up as a clown, went to see him in, in the cardiac unit and was leaving the hospital. And again, that's uh, some woman saw me and said, come visit my mother. And so I just did. Anyways. So when Bud got out of the hospital, he was found that it was such a good experience that he. Started doing his own clowning, and his wife was also a clown. So they would go into the care, the, the hospital, the, particularly the cardiac care units, and he they made little pinwheel wheels that you could blow. And the whole thing about having heart surgery or opening up the chest—you have to have a certain ability to blow before you can go home. You know, lots of things, but you have to, that. You have to develop that ability again. Um, so they would go out to the car afterwards, and with little take a player and go, what were the moments of grace today? And so I thought, interesting. And and then I realized sometimes I'd go and think, oh, why am I here today? And then something happens and you go, yes, this is why I'm here today. There are certain times that it's, you know, it's the usual routine, things go well. And other times you suddenly realize, yeah, this is, this is why I'm here today. And this is why I'm here. Sometimes in the, uh, I always go to the intensive care unit and I've had sometimes adults when the kid was, you know, really out of it, say, would you stop and see him? And so I'll stop. And I realize that I'm really there because the parent wants some distraction. They want, they want that, that moment of grace, that miracle of the clown or the power of the clown. They don't realize that I don't think in their own mind, but I think, yeah. So, uh, it's always amazing. And another time, I, I mean, I developed that because I'd been doing the peacock feather with, uh, for a couple of years. And then I was doing the, ho- the hospital does a holiday party. So I was as an elf, just as an elf, balancing a uh, cane on my finger. And this mother came up and said, you came to see my daughter when she was in the hospital here. And I said, oh, me? You know, I was kind of being a different character. I was saying, oh, I don't know about that. She says, no, no. You showed her how to balance a peacock feather. And I said, yeah, okay, I did. She said, that was a, it was so wonderful because when she got out of the hospital, she oh. went to school. And that's what you remember about the hospital. She showed them that she had learned how to balance a peacock. Better. And so there, that I remember from that moment that the moment of grace happens and it may not be on your side, it may be on their side, or you don't know what influence you've had, but you just trust. And you, you just put it out there with the universe, and it is what it is.
1: And when you're having a moment, when you're having an interaction, an unexpected gift, so to speak, from the universe, where you're interacting with that mom, she shares that with you. What are you? I mean, what are you thinking about, Albert? What's going? What are your emotions in that case? Because you're obviously not expecting that, but something so powerful like that. You can only imagine that. That, as you've said, makes these experiences and these incredible uh, moments that you're able to share with these kids. So gratifying. And you, like I am seeing and witness to right now, the power of laughter, the power of joy, the power of the clown.
0: Well, if I'm experiencing it in the room, that is, that is a different situation than if I'm talking to someone about the fact, you know, that a year before I visited them or something like that, when I'm in the room and I'm noticing that transformation, I'm still trying to stay right with that moment and and go see what I need to do next and and how we can make that moment even stronger sometimes i I mean I've gone to see a kid and which stay much much longer than I should because it put me behind schedule, but it was just that's what I felt they needed to do a teenager maybe who I show them a card trick, and they want to show me a card trick, and there's something about that moment that I've opened up and we're building a rapport that it's not time for me to worry about what's happening in the room next door. It's this moment right here, and that's that's what I will do i'll I'll take that extra time and then move on down to the next room.
1: Thank you yeah, thank you that, that's that's amazing. Albert, I want to dive into now the, the, the nickname Fool that you have given yourself that people refer to you as for have done so for many years. There's a great history behind that. And I would love it if you could just share why you go by the name Fool and kind of that historical perspective that you can bring.
0: I try to be the fool. It's a hard thing to live up to. But the fool that I'm thinking of, and I remember some people said, you should never call yourself a fool. No, no. And I'm going, why not? I mean, the fool is a very important person or character, and particularly in the old days of the king and queen. Their role was to speak truth to the kingdom. And I think that's what more and more people need to do, speak truth to whatever's going on. I often use the expression "What happened? What would have happened if uh, President Nixon had had a fool in his cabinet?" What happens a lot of times with people, and when they reach that point, if they don't, if you don't agree with them, they get rid of you. I think I would always want to have somebody who would say, "Excuse me, sir, or Mr. President, or President of the Corporation." Let's just think about this. Why, if in fact you are heading the polls, and you're going to break into the this office building? it's not going to happen, but just assume you got caught. What about that? Had somebody been there like that? Maybe they would have gone, oh, yeah. I sometimes I'm sitting on a board and every now and then I'll go, why are we even having this conversation? And sometimes I'll go, you're right. Or um, I remember being in a situation on a board and I thought the board was about to do something that was not the best thing I could be doing. It was not a just thing. And so I finally says, you know, let's reevaluate this. So that's why I think about the role of the fool. But also, I think if you can bring that laughter, if I'm, if I'm in a hardware store, and can make fun, make laughter in the, with the people there, then I've done my job. I, it doesn't have to be in a hospital room. I really see the power of, of laughter and relationship wherever I am. So I I go to the grocery store, my neighborhood, they know me. The same thing with the hardware store. They know me. Lots of places. And and I I just try and do that. Like right now, because of the pandemic, I've been wearing a little propeller hat, the beanie propeller hat, which has a little propeller on it. And I say it's the hat for the pandemic. And I can't tell you the number of places I have been, Costco, walking down the street, In my car, people say, I like your hat. And so I've given them a shift. And I often say it's the hat for the pandemic. And now my phrase is, I don't know how long I'll have to wear it, but I'm wearing it. (laughs) And I actually have purchased several more just in case one of them gets damaged or something. So the fool. Let me tell you another story about the fool. They have to be willing to risk, I think. There was a case where a British fool made the king mad. And the king said, I'm banishing you to France. And if your foot ever touches English soil again, I will have you executed. So the fool goes to France and he's there for a couple of years. He's miserable. He wants to go back home. So he comes back home and the king hears that he's returned to England. He has him arrested. He brings him before him and says, I now have to execute you because I told you if your foot ever touched English soil again, I would execute you. And you've, I have to do that in order to maintain my position. And with that, the fool said, Wait, your highness. He takes his shoe off and pours out a layer of French soil and says, My foot has not touched English soil since I've been here. And the king said, You're back, my fool. So there are great stories like that. So I just, um, I think the world needs more fools, more people who are willing to speak up, particularly in this time uh, of, of politics, of uh, racial justice, of uh, issues in, in the churches, uh, somebody who should be there to say, but let's think about this.
1: We need leaders to allow their values and morals to guide their action as opposed to letting up here in the the power of the mind and the the way of the mind to become tempted to guide that that takes me into what you're wearing right now button a button that's again been so vocal against so much racial unrest against so much social upheaval in society can you tell me the story of how you started creating these buttons and now I think you've, again, you've purchased, you've created over thousands of them and you've given them to people. Albert, I'd love to hear more about that.
0: Well, the button you're referring to, since we're on radio, is um, racism, bigotry, and hatred with the stomp or the, the circle, with the X through it or the line through it. About 30, I think 34 years, and then maybe this year or next month, uh, there was an Ethiopian immigrant in Portland, Oregon, who was beaten to death by a bunch of skinheads. And the next Sunday, I was at my church, St. Francis of Assisi, and the priest, Pete Rory, came in, and he talked about the Star of David. And he had a little Star of David that the Jews had to wear during the Nazis. And, and then his sermons, was sort of like when they came for this person, uh, I did nothing when they came for that person. I did nothing when they came for the me. There was nobody doing anything for me. So I, he was wearing the Star of David. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I, I thought that's a hard thing to explain to people. I Also, I did not agree with what the state of Israel was doing with, with the Palestinians at that time. So I thought I can't do that. So I started thinking about, and I just came up with the idea of racism, bigotry, and hatred. Just, it covers it all. You know, get rid of it all. Uh, so I came up with this button design and had about 300 printed up and gave them out to parish people and stuff like that. Took some, and then I had actually probably more than that because I took some to Japan with me. And it was interesting wearing them in, anyways, in Japan and having the Japanese say, what does that button mean? And explaining to them because uh, they're a very monolithic culture. Anyways, that was the story of the button, And quite frankly, in 2016, I felt there was a need to reprint the button, so I was uh, started it again, and originally it was in black and white and red, lettering in black, and then the background is white, and the red was the uh, circle with a line, and I had a lawyer friend who said, I want blue. I want red, white, and blue, and I'm going like, oh, I don't know, Gary. That's, you know, the whole thing about red, white, and blue at that time was another major issue. Are you wearing the red, white, and blue if you're this side or that side? So I did, and I went to a designer, and they could not find a blue. The red was very quick. They said, oh, yeah, it's a red panto. It's surprising how thick designer books are that have colors. You think the colors are all the same. No, no, no. There are multiple varieties of reds and oranges, and particularly blues. So one day, the assistant with this Place, came in and says, I have, I sampled the White House website, and this is the blue that matches the White House website. And I said, we'll, we'll use the, that blue. So the buttons come in red, white, and blue. Some of them have the background in blue with the writing in white in the red. Uh, and then the, this one, which has the opposite, they have the white background and blue. But I still have a few of the red, white, and black. And I've given out, I've made about, had not made at myself, but had about ten thousand buttons. I figured out the other day or the month or two back that I'm a couple of hundred buttons short of ten thousand buttons. I know that sounds like a bad joke, but it's it's true. and I'm about to make have another thousand or so made.
1: and so what are people's reactions when they see these buttons, when they see you wearing obviously the the the, the beanie hat with the propeller, but then also a button, especially in a time. Like we're going through right now.
0: Well, I get the various reactions. Somebody says, Oh, I like that button. And I'll say, You do? I make them. How many would you like? And they go, Really? So I'll give and they'll they'll say, oh, just one. I said, Oh no, no, you need more than one because somebody else is gonna say, I like that button. And then you can take your button off and give it to them or give them another button. Sometimes I'll get people who'll lean in and look at it and then go, Oh, and I'll say, in my mind, not out loud, but in my mind, I go, yes, this button is for you. I've had people say, I saw your button down at uh, Office Depot. Somebody was wearing it down there. So, yeah, it's it, it's, it, it's been getting around. I was on the airplane, and this one lawyer, she said, I like that button. And I said, how many would you like? And so... I gave her what I had and I mailed her another bag when I got home and I've had people who say, I'd like to buy a hundred of them. And I said, well, you don't have to no, no, I want to buy a hundred of them because I'm going to take them back to Milwaukee or to my hometown or whatever. So it's, it's gotten around. And then there's a woman who traveled a lot with, uh, an organization where she would do work consulting in various parts of South America. because she was, so a lot of my buttons now have made it
1: to South America. And what I love about that is you're taking action. You're standing up for what you believe. You're taking a stance and saying, hey, racism, bigotry, hatred, it's wrong. And, and a lot of people can, can say, oh, that's wrong. But then we feel paralyzed. We feel paralyzed. Oh, I can't make a difference in that. I can't do anything. Well, you right now are showing that you can take actions. You can take steps that are going to influence people in this world and stand, again, take a stand in terms of social justice. How can people who are kind of the deer in the headlights right now, they see some of these issues going on right now, especially during this pandemic, especially with this election coming up, and they feel that, that deer in the headlights and they want to act, but they feel just paralyzed. How? What would you say to them to empower them to act like you're doing with the buttons? Vote, <laughs> vote. But that's that's no. I think
0: daily you have you hopefully you don't every day have to face those situations, but mm-hmm. when you do, you can say you know that's that, that's not nice. Or that's not right. I mean, speaking about grocery stores or stores, I have I would see somebody just get mad at the cashier. And I would come up and I would apologize for what that person said it did because it was not right. Other times I've been in situations where I've actually had the opportunity to say something that we you know. Kids, will, I do a lot in schools, so sometimes kids will say something and I'll say, no, you can't say that. That's, that's not right. So you're calling them on at that moment. Same thing if you're in a job and somebody starts telling a joke that they shouldn't be telling or that's, that's offensive. I talked about that in Humor in the Workplace. There are jokes that bring us together and there are jokes that separate us and that put people down. And those kind of jokes are the bad jokes. You wanna you want bring lift people up, not put people down with humor. And I, I, I like the fact that it says racism, bigotry and hatred. I know right now there's this, a lot of talk about Black Lives Matter. And that's it's covered by so much, and and, and black lives matter. I'm totally in f- favor of. But at the same time, there are other groups that are people hate. Do you hate hate a Trump person? Do you hate a Biden person? Hate's a strong word, and you really don't want to do that. I have disagreements with people about their views, but their views it's it doesn't mean. I have to not like them as a person unless the behavior is such that they're doing. And then what, and again, I don't have to dislike what they, the person, but it's what they are doing. Are they going out and treating people, killing people, whatever. They're just, um, there's a wonderful line that John McCutcheon on his song, it was, it was about the, the peace in the trenches in World War I, Christmas Eve, where both sides had a truce and they came out and they played soccer ball and they sang songs and shared a little bit of brandy and that kind of thing. And at the end of his song, he says, we're both the same on each end of the gun. And if we just remember that, that we're all creatures of God, if you believe in God, if not, we're all creatures of the universe.
1: Our Thank you. I want to finish our conversation today with a quote that you said several years ago that I think really captures the current moment in this world and in our conversation today. I think in our world today, we need more fools. People willing to do the foolish thing of saying, why are we doing this? We need to change what we are doing. We all have so much more in common with each other than we have differences. I could not agree more and just want to say thank you for your time. And and especially in regards to this quote, how can we apply this to our situation and our call to action going forward? Just
0: be open and do your actions out of love and kindness, not out of anger or hatred or bigotry. I think
1: just, and, and you've really done your homework well. I don't, I don't remember where where'd that quote come from. Albert, I found a six page article on you that was, I, I'll look for the source, Oh, but I, you probably know what it is. Yeah. From the <laughs> COAI. was it? Clowns of America international. Amazing article. Amazing article.
0: <laughs> I, I take my hat off to you. you. You're very good at this. And so this may be where you're going. So anyway, no, that was, that was a, Thank you for for bringing that one back up. That's what I would say is just uh, let that be the way you live. We don't do great acts. We do small acts with kindness. The little small things we do daily.
1: Small actions (laughs) change the world. Do the small thing with great love. Most
0: of us are really blessed. And I remember working at St. Francis Dining Hall one time, and we had just shut down on a Sunday. We had finished. All the food was gone. I made extra peanut butter sandwiches for people. It was way past closing time and I was at the door closed. I didn't have keys to get back in. And this guy comes up on a bicycle and he says, Oh man, is it closed? I said, yeah, we served an hour ago or an hour and a half ago. And he said, Oh, can I get something? And I made two peanut butter sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for this man who had come in just before him. And he Left with me. So he's standing there with two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And this guy said, Here, you want one? And it's like, yeah, people will share.
1: Humanity, we are all good. We all have so much compassion and kindness within.
0: Yeah. And, and we often think other people don't, but, but they do.
1: Just live your life
0: and be open. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I love that. You're amazing. You're amazing, Albert. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm looking forward to more conversations. This is we got to touch on so many great things that I think are gonna a lot of people are gonna be gonna find really really impactful. So you've, you've done a lot, and just so grateful to get to share a little a little of your story today. So okay. Well, thank you for asking. Of course. Of course. Stay in touch. Oh, of course. Thank you. <laughs> Talk soon. Bye. See you, Albert.